Thanks for tuning in to the Reenactors Corner podcast. In this episode, we've got a great and really interesting interview with Matt and Jeff from the Military History Preservation Group. They're going to talk about uh, World War II events that they've done in the past, uh, ideas for events in the future, and some really big plans that they've got for a dedicated site for World War II and historical reenacting. Stick around. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again. Uh, unfortunately, no Lassa again this time. He wasn't feeling well today and couldn't do this episode, which is uh, really too bad. But the good news is that I have a couple of great guests here today uh, on the podcast. It is Jeff and Matt from the Military History Preservation Group. How are you guys doing today? Good, thanks. Um, I guess first off, for people who aren't familiar with you guys, um, if you could each just kind of give like a little introduction and talk about what you do in reenacting and how you got involved in reenacting. Oh, sure. You go first, Matt. All right. Um, I got started about 18 years ago now in Civil War. Started doing that, taking the field at a young age, and it grew from there. Did... Uh, World War II, World War I, uh, get into 18th century now. And just Jeff and I got together when we were probably about in high school and started doing events together. And how we started doing stuff together, we just and started forming events. We just wanted to do good, cool events that we would have fun at. And that's kind of how our organization started doing stuff like Stalingrad, Aachen, Nuremberg. Yeah, I'm, uh, obviously I also run War's End Shop. Uh, I got started in reenacting around 2000 or 2001. I, I honestly can't really remember, but uh, started doing uh, reproductions around 2008 and did mostly that for a number of years and have been getting back into reenacting slowly with, with Matt and everybody else and planning these events. Why don't you tell us about the organization that you guys run, the uh, the Military History Preservation Group? It, it formed... Uh from our organization that we used to call Ohio Factory Events, we saw a need to, to make it a very transparent, open group in a nonprofit setting that could be dedicated 100% to reenacting uh, with the ultimate goal of finding a permanent site and a home to do reenacting. Because, you know, as you know, events are a lot of them going by the wayside at the whims of certain property owners, being able to find events, sites, insurance, and things like that. And, yeah, it's, it's always been in the back of my mind that reenacting is really needs a, a home of its own to really grow and become what I know that it can be. And uh, it really needed to be a nonprofit format because of all the you know, drama and things that go along with events. Yeah, I mean, we've all heard it if you've gone to an event. So it, it just needed to be its own thing and then something that can outlast us even and continue on. Yeah, I think that would be uh, a huge improvement from the current situation. Like like you alluded to, events kind of are, are transient in a way. You know, they come and go. Um, and even long-standing events we've seen can, dis- can you know, disappear at any time. 
uh, based on stuff that's really outside of our control. So yeah. to have sub, a spot that we could use that we own, you know, or that is dedicated for reenacting would be really cool. Yeah, I, I always like to think of it as, uh, you know, like uh, being a millennial growing up and moving out of the house kind of thing is you know, reenacting has been around for a while and it still is just sort of living in its parents' garage <laughs> <laughs> in a way. It's, it's always relying on somebody else. The World War One reenactment organization here on the East Coast, the Great War Association, they have a site. Yes. Uh, in Newville, Pennsylvania, where they've recreated World War One trenches, but there is no, there's no such place for World War Two, um, and I, I think there never has been. So that would be a, a major development in the hobby for sure. Right. Yeah. There was definitely a lot of uh, lessons learned, a lot of good that we can learn from those guys going forward with something for World War Two. They they have been something of a model both for some of our events and some of our rules and definitely in how we've approached the idea of the site. Um, ideally, uh, we, we tried to find something that was, we're looking for something that is large enough to accommodate multiple uh, time eras as well, not just World War II, but uh, a more broader focus without also being too muddled and uh, too collected together. Yeah, I think a broader focus would be, uh, would be important because you're going to need a lot of people and, and World War II reenacting really just isn't that big, you know, or hasn't been. Right. And, and we've gained a lot of support from guys, you know, including myself, that do 18th century Vietnam. And our organization is starting to form committees dedicated to that where, you know, there's an 18th century committee head. Eventually there'll be a Vietnam era committee head where they can have input in the nonprofit towards constructing stuff on an, our eventual permanent site for stuff like that. So, you know, why don't you kind of flesh that out a little bit more for us? Uh, I think you're looking at locations like maybe uh, in Ohio again? Uh, yes, we've actually found a really great site in eastern Ohio. Uh, it kind of sits in a weird mythical time zone of its own because it's so close to so many things. It's only five hours from Washington, D.C., five hours from Chicago, five hours from uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, it's only an hour from the Pittsburgh airport, uh, and it just has a really good reach, and the site itself is large enough that it could, in theory, accommodate multiple time periods, even at the same time, and none of them would know he, the other one was there. It's it's just, it's almost like having our own military base in a way. It's just that vast. What's on the site now? Is it just uh, undeveloped property? Yeah, it's uh, an old mining property that... Uh they stopped mining there in the late 40s, early 50s, and it's uh, currently owned by a large company that is looking to get rid of it, and we've reached out to them and, and talked about our acquisition to the site, and they've responded pretty well, and we're gaining a lot of support from uh, local politicians, and they're pretty excited to, to help us out. They've already started researching grants. Wow, that's really exciting. You guys are uh, talking about like you know improving it, building building stuff on there. That's one of the things that has frustrated me the most in my years of reenacting is we've, my old units and things that I've done, we've built so much on other property just to have it ripped out from under us so many times. And it, it kind of got to the point where it's almost a joke amongst us. It's like, don't lift a finger to make this event better because as soon as we do, it's going to get taken away. And that's what I want to put you know, put to bed. I want it to be something that we can finally take this blank slate of land and turn it into everything that we've always wanted. You know, if 
we're basically creating what every reenactor has always talked about that that mythical reenactor land you know, reenactor disneyland so to speak plus and, a lot of time is spent you know at any event you go to any coordinator will know yeah. a lot of time is spent setting up infrastructure toilets water a registration area you know generators and and stuff like that all the time and money can be used towards improving the event itself rather than setting up basic infrastructure and necessities i know people are probably listening to this and thinking that the amount of money that would be required to make this happen is is almost like inconceivable um but I guess you guys kind of have a plan for how you're going to come up with uh, the money to, to make all this stuff? Yes, there's there's a number of ways that we can pull together money. And to be honest, even events themselves can generate a lot of funds. But the way reenacting is done currently with all these various sites that we use and all the different insurances and setup, so much of the money that we have been spending on the hobby to date is basically just being thrown away every time we build a new event on a new site. Uh, this is will it would be way more efficient for us to focus on a site that we can really make ours and build the way we want. Uh, we're uh, we have a on our website we're starting to sell memberships on a monthly or yearly basis. It's it's really cheap. It's fifty dollars a year, five dollars a month, whichever one you choose, and it's basically uh, to raise funds and also, more importantly, to show that the concept of Reenactor Land has support, you know, broad support. So when we go to our, uh, our congressmen and our senators and this company that owns the land, that they see that, hey, wait, this isn't just a couple crazy guys. There's a bunch of people that want to see this happen. Uh, and that all can be seen transparently through our website mhpg.us they can see that you know they can they can understand hey this is more than just a couple of guys with with a business plan this has got the support of the hobby cool yeah we'll put a link to your website in the show notes so that people listening to this can go and uh, check it out and read a little more about it that'd be great thank you what kind of uh what kind of buildings really i mean maybe this is just like total speculation and you guys aren't even on that point yet but what kind of buildings were you thinking of making there well Pretty much anybody that's ever put on a reenacting uniform has had this idea. So when I, when we say this, most people already know everything we want to build. You know, we want to have barracks eventually. Um, what we'd really like to do is also build some sort of dedicated, secure on-site vehicle storage that could also double as a sort of a museum space. That way the guys who have uh, vehicle collections or larger vehicles can bring them to the site leave them either indefinitely or, you know, come early for events and have a nice place to keep their vehicle. Um, and then eventually villages. Uh, we actually have somebody that's donating lumber to the organization in order to build the 18th century village. So there's so many things that we could do. It's just a matter of breaking it up into manageable chunks and picking what's going to be most useful to the organization early on and, and what, what's best to build later. Yeah, that's a really uh, huge undertaking. Oh, it is. And, uh, I certainly, you know, the 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 more I think about it, the scope of the amount of work that would have to be done, it's uh, it's tremendous. Yes. Yeah, it's no short task, that's for sure. Well, you guys uh, definitely have some experience in uh, running some successful events. You guys ran the World War II events at the factory site in Ohio. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what what how did that get started with that uh, that factory site and what was like your vision for events at that site early on? Okay, well, it, it really was just uh, us as reenactors wanting to fight in an urban environment and and do the Battle of Stalingrad, which is always something we've loved to read about and haven't had a chance to do. So we just took it upon ourselves. We're like, well, let's go ahead and do this. If we want it, let's let's make it a reality. And it started with simply reaching out to property owners and going from there. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because I, I ran another Stalingrad-esque event in 2015 at a cement factory in Pedro, Ohio. It was sort of the precursor to this. And then uh, I met up with, uh, I met some younger reenactors in my area and uh, started talking and they, they, they had gone uh, urban exploring and found an ice factory in Youngstown and told me about it and they were just out loud dreaming about you know this how neat it would be to reenact in this factory and I was like well let me let me call the guy who owns it and you know I, I found him in a few minutes and gave him a call and we couldn't have asked for a better person to work with and so it, it went from there really wow um I can't imagine how you must have felt talking to this owner of this massive property and proposing that he, uh, you know, allow you to recreate the Battle of Stalingrad on it. Yeah, the, the conversation went surprisingly smoothly. I, I often think that he didn't believe anything would happen with it. Uh, I, I think he was curious, and I think that he fielded a lot of questions on a fairly regular basis about the property, and none of them ever panned out. And uh, he was probably expecting the same from us. And in fact, he's, he's told us as much. Mm-hmm. He was really surprised when we showed up to do work. He's, he, yeah. he, would, he didn't uh, know what was happening exactly. He had a lot of uh, paintballers and airsofters approach him and a lot of empty promises, which left him kind of jaded from the whole experience. And then when he met us and we were true to our word with what we said to him, he was pleased and, and gave us free reign of the place. It was a, a, nice, uh, a nice arrangement. That's awesome. Um, what about like you must have had to talk to like the police there in Youngstown? Did you have to get like permits or permission or did you just notify them of what was going on or how did well, that work? The uh, first year I reached out to the, the YPD and I actually got hooked up with a captain at the office and he was incredibly helpful. Um, I told him what we were going to do and he basically said, oh, this sounds really this sounds really amazing. I want to help you. Let me make some phone calls. A day or two later, I got a phone call back, and he had already made all the arrangements with the city. So uh, we found out we didn't, for what we were doing there, we didn't need permits because it was private property, private event. And he just, he kind of did a lot of legwork there, which was, that was very helpful. Yeah, it was nice. It, it did open up a great working relationship with them. They were able to put out press releases ahead of our event to, to warn the local public, hey, this is going to be happening, a little bit more gunfire than usual. And uh, it worked out great. We brought local fire and EMS there to check out the site in case of emergencies. And the city was very helpful and, and, and worked with us pretty well. I think those events, you know, I went to two of the Stalingrad events that happened there. And I just, uh, I, everyone that I talked to had a great time. Everybody um, was excited about, you know, doing the next one. Um, you know, th- that site was, uh, was really cool. And it was something that a lot of reenactors had never really experienced before fighting in an urban setting like that. And also the the bet, doing the Battle of Stalingrad was really kind of a novel concept because most events typically in the United States have been 
later war events so that um, GIs can participate. Sure, yes. And this was like a, a 1942 event. So, um, you know, when what when you started, did you think that that event was going to become as big as it eventually did? Um, honestly, I, I wasn't sure. Uh, everybody that I had talked to about trying to do a Russian front event said it was impossible to do in Ohio. Uh, you can't get Russians. I, I've been to Russian front events in Ohio where there's, you know, four Russians and they're all in borrowed kit because they're actually Germans. They just dressed up. Mm -hmm. And so there were a ton of people that doubted that it could even be done. So, but I, I just wanted to see it happen and we went with it and we knew that we had a hunch that if we set higher goals and made it something that people would want to come to, that we could actually build it out. And uh, it, it was a pretty good response because there was even, uh, there were even a number of people who put together kits just for the event, mm -hmm. which was, yeah, you know, I was blown away by the reenactor response to what we did. And of course, the, the difficulty level of doing those events must have been pretty high. I mean, I know you guys had to do a ton of work to the site to make it usable in the forum that we used it in. And also, I mean, just... Um, that place is kind of inherently dangerous and you're asking people to do uh, an impression that a lot of people go into that event had maybe never even done before. So I, I think that was like a, a real high degree of difficulty probably wow. for, for hosting and running an event. There was definitely a lot of back work that we had to do that didn't really get noticed and, and for good reason. A lot of it was just cleaning areas out, shoveling garbage out, uh, taking graffiti and covering it up and then reinforcing floors and floorboards and things you don't really see or care about, but needed to be done to support the amount of people that came out of the site. You guys uh, had billed it, I guess maybe the later events that happened there as a total war event, which I think is interesting because um, I've read some stuff that you guys had sort of written about it and alluded to kind of the uh, concepts that people use in reenacting the terms that they use, like a campaigner event versus an immersion event or a tactical. And those Terms can kind of mean different things to different people. Precisely. So um, calling it a total war event, what, what did that mean to you? For us, it was essentially a communications tool. Um, it wasn't so much a new form of reenacting. We're not, we don't have that big of a head. It's, it's just a good, it was a good way to get people to pay attention to what we wrote and try to understand what the event was about and learn about it so that they were all on the same page. Uh, it was it was sort of in response to previous events where we had used more traditional terms and then different units would show up with different ideas about what to do or how to do it. And it created a lot of uh, friction between units because one unit was playing one way, another one was playing another way and it wasn't meshing and that was one of the people's complaints. So we had to find a way to grab their attention and actually get people to read what we were going for. So like, what, what were you going for? What was, what was that? What were those events about? You know, it was really a mix. It was something that we could bring you know, a lot of different sides of the hobby to, you know, the guys that are traditionally billed as, you know, the authentic campaigner guys or the, the guys who would go to immersion events and then, you know, more traditional mainstream guys that, you know, would go to tacticals. We wanted to bring it all into one. And we wanted to be a very inclusive, but, you know, again, with the higher standards where everyone could strive to obtain and, and get what they wanted out of it. Because, you know, you have it was such a unique site where we could have, you know, a, more of a, hey, these guys are in the rear doing, you know, mundane tasks and, and living the life of the soldier while this unit out here is, is engaged in fighting and 
So we wanted to create something that everyone could enjoy and everyone can get what they wanted out of it. Yeah, for me, it was, I've always done sort of specialty impressions in a way, uh, like communications or prod melder or supply. And at a lot of events, those things go by the wayside in favor of the grand tactical battle. And I really wanted to create uh, an event where all those specialty impressions that are occurring behind the lines have a place and have a real role and a real function in the greater battle, just as it would have been. You know, for every guy on the front lines, there's a half a dozen or more behind that making it happen. Just and, like what you and you guys, yeah. your guys did. Yeah, for uh, people out there who who didn't go to the event, uh, I was part of the team that was like doing a, kind of a clerical role at the event in a headquarters setting where we were. Uh, typing up orders to be distributed to uh, leaders in the field via runners. And um, we did some work on identity documents and issued passes and stuff. And I I love those kind of events. And it was really cool to be able to uh, do that in that setting. It was definitely uh, really immersive and uh, felt very realistic. I'm glad glad it went that way. (laughs) I'm glad it worked. (laughs) So... In addition to the Stalingrad events, there were there were two Western Front events that you guys have done so far, right? It was the Nuremberg and Aachen events. Correct. Yep. Correct. Were those like uh, easier to do than the Stalingrad event, or were they more difficult? Um, Aachen was a big learning experience for us. Um, it was our first Western Front event, you know, dealing with a different crowd, guys who do GI, and you know, again, there were certain expectations by the. GIs that came out that were different than the Germans and you know it's one of the precursors to let us come up with something that's unique like the total war it's like all right let's we have to build this differently and we were able to learn a lot with communication and sets us up better for the next event yeah the the events definitely have represented a progression you know the first Stalingrad was a little bit thrown together because it all came together so quickly within a couple months I think a Mm -hmm. month or two three months I think Uh, and then after that, Aachen was more planned, but it was still a lot to learn and a lot to adapt to what we were trying to achieve. And then it just kept getting better until that, that final, that last Stalingrad we did, that that was that brought it all together. That for felt me. good, yeah. Yeah, it felt really good. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that last Stalingrad event a little bit later. But um, I guess in terms of like the events in general, looking at them as a whole, were there things that um, that you thought were going to work out that didn't work out or, um, you know, where I, you mentioned that like there was stuff that you had to learn by doing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. There's, I, I can't Volunteers. think of anything that stayed the same, right. you know, you, you go in, you have to be willing to learn and change what you think is going to work. You can't just keep forcing it. <laughs> yeah. One thing we learned too is, you know, participation because, you know, it's a volunteer, it's a hobby. So, you know, if you're relying on, you know, one or two people to supply food and cooking, and if they don't show up for one reason or another, you know, sometimes not fault of theirs, you have to be able to adapt and, and overcome that obstacle. Yeah, we, we relied a little bit heavily on volunteers to fill key positions at the early events, and it did cause us some, some headaches just because they needed to be staff positions and with more dedicated people and uh, that that is really what helped change the the future events and led us into the mhpg yeah what what kind of advice would you have for other people who maybe have access to a property and are thinking about hosting a reenactment event you know what what would you tell them 
I mean, try it. Uh, I, we're in this to support the hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other things that the MHPG is doing is we're trying to essentially build events in a box. So we want to take care of all the back-end stuff um, so that the people who want to put on events and plan them don't have to worry about any of that boring stuff. They can just worry about planning their event, their authenticity, and their organization. Uh, I would definitely encourage anybody that wants to put together an event to go out and try to do it because that, that's what it takes at the end of the day. The, the events are made by a handful of people, really. When you, when you look at the grand scheme of all the events we've ever been to, there's only a, a few people that really do it. And one of the people that approached sure. us to our organization uh, was having issues putting together events from from his host unit. You know, people dropping out, not enough support. No one wanted to to really support him, so he came to us, and we're like, "Yeah, we can handle all the back end stuff, all the the paperwork, the liability waivers, you know, insurance," and that led him to focus on the event. And he's a part of what we call a committee. He's the, a part of a reenactment committee for one of our upcoming events in Gettysburg. Yeah, you're right. I mean, reenacting, World War II reenacting, I guess all of historical reenacting is is probably a, a pretty big hobby, but World War II reenacting being only a, a part of that is pretty small. You know, there's probably, I don't know, only, what, several hundred active World War II reenactors in the United States, and then the number of people who actually plan and host events is, like, incredibly small. You know, this whole thing is kind of on the shoulders of, like, a really pretty small number of, of like active people who are making stuff happen. Yeah. Uh, now there are actually a surprising number of reenactors in the U S I, I think, uh, D-Day and Fort Indian town gap are really good indicators of that. There's some of those events have brought in well over a thousand reenactors. It's, it's just, uh, getting them all to one event is sometimes difficult. You know, there is no census of uh, reenactors, mm-hmm. right? So it's like hard to, get a count. Yes. You know, there are a lot of people who go still now to Conneaut. They may only do that one event every year. Yeah. It's kind of difficult. And of course, coming out of COVID, you know, I don't know how the numbers will be, whether they're going to be more or less. You know, I think you could make a case for for either possible outcome. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about that 2020 Stalingrad event. Like, I, I was there... I thought that the event was uh, really successful. Everybody that I talked to, as I say, had a had an awesome time. And people were really excited for the event, and I think the the reality of the event matched people's expectations in a broad sense. Uh, it sounds like you guys regarded it as a success too. Yes, uh, from our end, it was certainly the most smooth running event that we've done so mm-hmm. far. Uh, we were able to tick off a lot of our our wish list items. Uh, not everything, but you'll always have that. I think a large success is, is due in part to the people who stepped up in the hobby and decided to take leadership roles and organization roles to, to lessen the burden on us. So we were able to delegate or delegate positions to people, which we are more than happy to do. You know, we had people heading up cook stuff. We had, you know, you guys in, in your administration role. We had people commanding the battles and lighten the load on us to focus on the, the bigger picture. I think I got to that event like first thing in the morning on Wednesday, yeah. if I remember <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, so, you were one of the first people you know, there. That, that event had a uh, the duration of that event, you know, was was really remarkable and is something that a lot of events uh, don't offer. You know, with so many events being like one day or just a weekend, um, but people were living in there from from Wednesday through Sunday. Um, you know, what what was it like 
running an event that lasted such a long time. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I would say that I have to do it that way again. Like mm-hmm. just that that first few days of the early arrivals did so much for the organization of the weekend event. Uh, it, it's it's almost indescribable how important that that length was. It it did get tiring, but it was never overwhelming. It, it because it went so well because of that, it, it just made it easy. And allowed the, the participants and everyone who showed up to really push out the outside world, which was slowly crumbling yeah, around yeah. us, and, and kind of focus on 1942. And, and then when you came out of it and went back to the modern society, it was almost like leaving Stalingrad where the world yeah. changed. What completely. happened while we were in 1942? <laughs> right. Yeah, it was crazy. The, the backdrop of that event happening right when... The first like waves of restrictions were coming down uh, the, you know, there was like new uh, COVID pandemic news, like coming out hour by hour at the time. Um, what do you think if that event was scheduled to happen a week later, would it even have been able to go no, on? No, I mean, it. the timing couldn't have been more perfect. And I mean, the world has just not been the same since that event, really. Yeah. It's uh, the... The whole COVID uh, issue and then all the news trickling in from the outside world, because we're we're all at this event, we're all cut off from technology and news, but we just keep getting little pieces of of news coming in, what's the latest, and it added a whole sense of foreboding above the whole event that really helped set the tone. It it was, I don't think you could recreate that, because it was a real world you know, foreboding over the, what's going on in the outside world. Oh, we had a participant from Germany, and he was genuinely concerned on if he was going to be returned back to Germany. And it was like, oh, yeah. that's, you can't buy an experience yeah. like that. You know, it's no, it's, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really was so weird. Even if that event, it was like a matter of days, and and something like that suddenly a matter in a matter of days after that event happened, the idea of an event like that happening was like absolutely impossible. Yeah, yeah. you know. And then we've tried since then, you know, we've, we've tried to work with the city and other, other uh, organizations to try to get, hey, let's try to do another event. And it's been that COVID, COVID, COVID. And a lot of events are being shut down or not able to even get off the ground because of COVID restrictions. I think it's probably true that for most of the people who went to that 2020 Stalingrad event, that was like the last event that they did, mm-hmm. you know, or, since then, right? Or, or certainly the, the last event of anything like that kind of scale. Yeah, that's for sure. For us, yeah. So a question I had, you know, I don't know if you can really predict this because nobody really knows uh, exactly when events will be allowed to resume as normal. But do you think that there will be events at that factory site again? Uh, For that site, no. Unfortunately, we've had some uh, damage to the site due to just the age of it. And we've deemed it unsafe. It's some construction in the area. Right. And and it's it's caused some issues. And, you know, we're not willing to put anyone's life or, or safety at risk to have an event there. So we've chosen not to, to do any more events at that site from, from here on out. But on the good side, it does force us to look at other opportunities. And we're constantly looking at new sites, proposing to, to property owners and, and branching out. And of course, focusing on the Living History Center, which kind of what we're calling reenactor land uh, in Ohio. Yeah, we've looked at so many factory complexes. Uh, there's, there's a terrific amount of abandoned things in, in my area. So yeah, the Rust Belt. Yeah, we've been... Uh, trying to branch out we'd really like to uh, eventually as, as our organization we'd like to own more than one property so we can have different types of environments but uh 
you know, the urban environment is just something that is so unique and we, we're really trying to find another one. Yeah, we're definitely going to revisit that. You know, people people will be sad to, to not do events there anymore. It was a cool site, uh, but it was really remarkable to watch how that site deteriorated from one year to the mm -hmm. next, just the two events that I did there. You know, um, it was like the roof was, was caving in, mm -hmm. stuff was, was falling down even just, you know, from one year to the next over the winter. Yeah. So, you know, I can't, I can't imagine. I, I would assume that place is even more deteriorated now, even regardless of construction or whatever else, just yeah. the, the fact that that place is kind of in the process of falling mm -hmm. down. Yeah. It's sad, you know, we, we put a lot of work in there and we enjoyed the events and, and the participation and just everyone's enjoyment. That, that was the best part, you know, how everyone really seemed to enjoy themselves there. And that's going to be missed, but it motivates us to find a new place. Yeah, we, we knew going into that event, uh, into that site, that there was going to be a clock on it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, events outside our control accelerated that clock a lot faster than we ever anticipated. I think, uh, you know, in a sense, you could, it would be hard to have like a better uh, kind of prelude for the Living History Center thing that you're trying to do, because those factory events generated so much excitement, so much energy and attention, you know, and now with the factory itself not being anymore, there is this vacuum and, you know, people are going to want to try to see that vacuum filled, I mm -hmm. guess, however they can. Yeah, and I think that uh, our new project with the, the large site, the Living History Center, it, it's sort of a, almost like, I would say a now or never kind of situation. Like reenactors have talked about this for so long. If, if you've ever put a uniform on, you've dreamed of it. It's one of those things that if, if we don't do anything, then it's guaranteed not to happen. But if we just try, you know, just participate a little bit we can at least say that we made an effort uh, and the success we've had thus far with obtaining that site has been pretty remarkable i mean nobody said no and there's very important people like i mentioned uh, people in the government and and the property owners themselves have been very excited about the opportunity of working with us yes i'm, I'm getting very strong vibes that are very similar to how stalingrad itself started mm -hmm. so all signs are pointing in a positive direction Jeff, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your business, Wars End Shop. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have bought stuff from you, are familiar with your website and your business. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about like, how you got started doing that stuff? Well, I, uh, I started reenacting 2000, 2001 in that area. And uh, within my unit, I became something of a, a whiz kid because of my... Uh, ability to use a computer, I guess, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, redo artwork. So I started making stuff for just the unit, uh, you know, condom packets and uh, cigarette, packs. The cigarette packs and the little leaflets uh, of souvenirs of Paris and things like that. And uh, I remember, I actually remember the first time I sold stuff was at Fort Indian Town Gap and I think 2007-ish, plus or minus a year. Uh, I mean, all the figs blur together. I think you all know why. <laughs> but uh, I remember walking around with an eight millimeter ammo bot, like crate, the wood crate, filled with condom packets and like girly pictures. You know, stuff that I, I had printed out. It, you know, good good stuff. It's it. I always made stuff because it wasn't available, and I just walking around selling those. And that, that's kind of how I got started. And then you know, came back, started a really really simple website. Uh, I, I still can't imagine how that early website worked. 
because uh, you know, people he had to email me and everything. I, I'm just surprised it even worked. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you ever go on uh, what is that called, the Wayback Machine, and take a look at the old website from 2008, 2009, it's it's kind of it's fasc- it's fascinating. <laughs> I remember that website. Uh, I remember you were like. There were like mortar parts on yeah. there, or was that was that something that came later? No, probably. I, I started the eight centimeter stuff very early on, and uh, it was started out with printed stuff, and then moved into eight centimeter and rifle grenade stuff, mm-hmm. and those have those have remained fairly steady themes for me. Yeah, you're the only source really for a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've always tried uh, to not compete. Like I, I'm not. I'm in this to make the hobby better, not necessarily like just you have to make money. You know, that's that's how you live. But it's about providing stuff that the hobby needs and doesn't have or doesn't have a source for. So it's I've never really tried to get into things that really compete with all the other vendors because there's there's no point. If somebody does it right already, I'm not going to get into it. What do you think now? Are there if someone else wanted to like be a reenactment vendor, is there even room anymore? I mean, most of the stuff that there's like a demand for people have been reproducing now for, for 20 years. Well, I'd say there's always something. There's always a blind spot somewhere. Um, it is more difficult, I would say. Uh, in, the, in the time that I've been biz- in business, I've seen so many people come and go. It, it's more about just running the business right, treating customers right, and just being smart about how you, uh, you know, uh, move your business forward. Uh, it, it also helps if you go into it with the correct expectations. I mean, you're not going to get rich doing <laughs> anything reproduction related. It's I mean, a labor that's, of love. <laughs> that's just not a thing. It's, uh, it's like a starving artist situation. So be prepared for that. That would be my advice. Cool. That's good advice that I think, uh, some people probably need to hear, you know, I, I think, uh, I don't know, there's probably not a month that goes by that I don't see somebody on Facebook or something talking about, well, I'm going to uh, go into business as a reproduction vendor. I'm going to make this object. I'm going to make that object. And I just think the the whole concept, you know, they're in for such a, a rude awakening when the reality comes and it's like, okay, geez, I need to sell so much of this stuff every day, you know, if I'm going to keep this going or, or make a living. Oh, yeah, it, right? and it's it's hard to... It's really hard early on to figure out prices. Even even after doing this as long as I have, it, it can be hard to figure out prices. You know, you, you got to keep it low. Yeah, too. you got to keep it low enough that it's fun. Like you don't want it to hurt. You know, you don't want your customers to feel pain when they buy from you. You want them to enjoy themselves. But at the same time, you got to make sure you're covering your costs and still making something and and still eating. And that can be a difficult balance to strike, especially. You know, a lot of people get into it early on thinking that, you know, all the vendors are out to rip them off and they were going to be a different kind of vendor. And it you pretty quickly realize that, no, you, you've got to charge a bit more than you anticipated. Absolutely. I know. I, I think people really get kind of uh, spoiled with like low cost of mass produced regular consumer goods that are made overseas that you can buy at Walmart and then don't understand why some kind of custom made Thing made in the USA in extremely small numbers by basically a, like a cottage industry hobbyist type guy should be so much money. Yeah. Probably now though, Jeff, people when they think of your shop, they think about all of the 
personal item stuff that you offer there that you guys get in Europe, um, that that wasn't really something that you guys did initially, right? That was something that sort of came later or, or wasn't? Um, yeah, it sort of came along later. Uh, I've always had a more of a personal item theme, I guess you could say, with the printed items and things like that. It's always been a lot of pocket stuffers. The stuff that I've always enjoyed as a reenactor, you know, filling out my pockets with neat things. And then, because uh, uh, I was in Germany in 2005 and as a student, and I went to a lot of flea markets, uh, made some good friends, contacts, and, uh, you know, I bought stuff for me and for my collection, and, but I didn't really even consider selling at that time. And then uh, I went back on vacation with uh, Sarah in 2011, I think, something like that. And uh, yeah, I started going to the flea markets again and just the amount of stuff that I was able to find and then and just kind of connecting to the dots, like this is all the stuff that I've wanted and I, I wasn't able to get. And uh, that we used to have vendors like uh, Ospront used to have a lot of nice like pocket trash and pocket stuffers, but he hadn't had any of that in a while. So I just started taking up that role and finding stuff and bringing it back. You know, what was your experience like in the mo- in most recent years, like your last trip pre-COVID of going to the flea markets in Germany? Is that stuff, is stuff that reenactors would be interested in buying still relatively easy to find or is it getting harder to find? It's not easy to find. Um, if you go to Germany on vacation, uh, for a week or two and go to some flea markets, you might find a cigarette tin or, you know, of I don't know, an A-frame strap or something, some random thing, but, you know, you're not going to find helmets, you're not going to find any kind of military equipment. Uniforms. At, or yeah. at least not for a reasonable price. Um, it's There's still some personal stuff out there, though. And then, yeah, a lot of the flea markets, depending on where you're at, are just complete garbage. They're every bit as bad as flea markets in the U.S. Yeah, I think uh, that's another thing where there's a lot of misconceptions where people think, well, you know, uh, Jeff goes to Germany, he comes back with, you know, this massive load of personal item type stuff. Uh, I'm going to go there on vacation and I'm going to do the same. I've, I've been lucky enough to travel to Germany a bunch of times and, you know, I've found stuff there, but in my experience also, it's, it's gotten harder, um, than what it was even 10 years ago. And like you say, like things like flags and daggers and helmets and uniforms, like forget it. You know, you've got to look for stuff where people might not even recognize that it's a military thing, like an old blank or something like that. My three-year-old blanket. (laughs) I think Jeff's success with that came a lot from being able to network, which, you know, people do on this side of the, of the pond as well, just be able to network with people. And, you know, he's, that's that is true. I mean, a lot of what I I find, uh, I've made a lot of really good contacts in the antique and like clean out industries over there, and uh, that's man the, for the amount of stuff that we have on we we find in Germany. It there's a lot of driving involved. I mean, we'll drive all week and do updates from the car sometimes and then just just going from place to place and filling up the car and then bringing it back and of course it's it costs money to to travel there it costs money to do all that driving it costs money to have places to stay and to get all that stuff you know it definitely adds up i mean the the first uh the first year we were there we actually just it was almost like a backpacking trip we slept in the car traveled all over but it was you know a month living in a car 
with all your rusty, you know, World War II stuff that you've been buying along the way. It was very interesting. Uh, I remember parking it uh, in train station, uh, like the uh, parking garages, and having to shuffle all of the World War II stuff to the front seats so that you could lay out a, a bed in the back. <laughs> How has COVID affected Warzone Shop? Are your sales up or down? I've heard like, I've heard various vendors saying that they had the best year that they ever had, and I've heard other vendors saying that you know they their business is basically crippled by it. I mean, I know you haven't you haven't been able to travel to Germany to get new stuff. Um, luckily, I buy so much that I have a, a large stockpile set to set to the side. But um, it, it's been a weird unpredictable year. I, I won't say that it's crippled me. Not having in-person shows has been pretty detrimental, but the website has also somewhat picked up. Um, it's a little bit weird because it's inverted from normal years. So normally we have bigger spikes in income around the big events like D-Day uh, or uh, the, the summer events. But this year, everything kind of dropped right around that time with that deficit there. But then other months were much higher than normal. So uh, I don't know. It's it's a very strange year for sure. You recently started offering some like uh, 3D printed n- new stuff. Uh, how's that? That's pretty exciting. It's kind of a new frontier of uh, reproduction stuff. How's that project coming? Uh, it's going pretty well. I'm really glad that people are taking to it because uh, when I got into it. Uh, it was just looking for a way to manufacture things that didn't eat up so much of my time. Uh, casting stuff is cheaper for sure, but it just takes up so much time to do. And this is, this is, uh, going to be very interesting in the next few years. I think we're going to see a lot of big changes in the hobby and as far as what people can do. And hopefully this means the death of huggy juice bottles and, you know, Easter egg grenades. Yeah. I can't wait for those to go away forever yeah that's a great point i mean those are kind of authenticity compromises that people sort of had to make because uh there was not not really any kind of other option you know now with with there being options i'm sure that um you know people will be glad to get rid of these pyro simulator things that really have absolutely no visual similarity to any kind of world war ii yeah i mean when and it comes down to like uh my my theory for when i reenact i'm doing I'm doing it for me. I want my experience to be good. To be completely honest, when I'm firing my 8-centimeter mortar, I want everything on my end to be absolutely perfect because that's where I get my enjoyment. I don't necessarily care what's happening on the other end. <laughs> you know, it's I'm not, I don't get to see it. And if I was a real 8-centimeter mortar crew, I wouldn't be able to see it anyway. So uh, I just I want to see the hobby sure. get to the point where it's just taken to the max. Like, what's the best thing we can possibly do? But it has been pretty exciting when, when people come up to us and like, oh, were you guys firing those mortar rounds? They look so real. You know, they were smoking. They looked real. And Yeah. What, are, what else do you have coming up in the works, Jeff? Are you working on like other uh, projects for other reproduction stuff you can tell us about? Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I have a habit of starting things and then getting 90, 95% of the way through it because I'm excited about it. And I hit a stumbling point like a, uh, I did the... Uh, hollow charges here recently and then i hit a stumbling point with getting hardware to assemble them and it, once it goes on the shelf it's hard to get it back off the shelf the backpack radios <laughs> yeah the backpack radios uh uh there's always something new in the works 
it's what can I get to the actual production phase is, is sometimes harder. Like the eight centimeter rounds have been pretty good. That Those sped through the development process and actually went into full production really fast. The mines are pretty exciting. The mines are neat. The S mines. Uh, I'm really excited for those. Although I can, I can already feel that the next version of that, uh, so the, the first version I did is pressure tripped only. So you actually have to step on the CO2 powered S mine to set it off, which is a pretty small range, you know, for, for something like that. The next version will have a, uh, simulated fuse with tripwire capability. So it can extend the, the range of it and they're really neat, but it's getting all the little hardware bits figured out and making sure it all works and doesn't just break. So yeah, they, the, that's the awesome. S-mines are pretty neat. When I when I did get a good test out of the tripwire, it shot the S-mine about a, one meter in the air. So you definitely know something happened. <laughs> one application we used them for as a test was in a, in a trench line when Soviets came in and they're stepping on them and freaking out. And, well, then, yeah, uh, no, the Soviets, uh, we gave them to the Soviets to, to that's right, mess yeah. with the Germans, and they, they took the German trench, planted mines in it, and then retreated out. And when the Germans reoccupied it, they psh, psh, Stuff going off. The grenades are pretty cool. Very Did you cool. get a chance to see the hand grenades at Stalingrad, Chris? Yeah, they they were really uh, they were really impressive. I also saw those S mines. Casey, who was a guest on the podcast in the past, uh, bought a bunch and uh, he made some videos and showed them to me. He was thrilled. They were shooting up three feet in the air and everything. It was great. Yeah, I'd like to see those videos actually. <laughs> I wouldn't mind adding some to the website. I I always plan on doing some sort of video or something like that but then i i, I realize i sound the my voice sounds bad on a recording so i don't like <laughs> to do it i have the face for radio but not the voice <laughs> right uh, don't be so hard on yourself i think it sounds great we're coming up on the end of the hour here um looking at like the big picture of reenacting not just the reenactor land idea but like uh reenacting in general or world war ii reenacting anyway what do you think it's going to look like after covid do you think that there are a lot a lot of people out there who are really excited to get back in the field or do you think there are a lot of people who maybe were kind of on their way out maybe and covid maybe hasten that i think or you know it's important what's your prediction? And i know it sounds cliche and you see these motivational posters everywhere but i think it's important to support everyone else in the hobby support other events support other initiatives like like Landry and his uh, Kriegsschule that he's putting on together. Oh, yeah. There's there's definitely some exciting things for the future of reenacting. I, I, I'm really excited for uh, I don't know if you've heard about it, the, the Kriegsschule that uh, the Landry Sr. is putting together mm-hmm. to do officer and NCO training. I'm very excited for that and what that could eventually do for the hobby. Um, I also think that you're going to have a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B as far as people coming and going from the hobby. I think there's a very good chance that over the, the COVID period, I've noticed an increase in online videos of reenactors, you know, making their shooting their own little short films. Uh, I think that's going to have an interesting effect on the hobby in itself. Just just this time to concentrate on what they want to get out of reenacting will change what they do when they get back into it. And I think it's going to bring in a new crowd. I think it could. I, yeah, I agree with you there. Um, the social, the like, Interplay between social media stuff and reenacting is something that I think is like still a developing situation. You know, you guys made such good use of social media for promoting the factory events that you did. There was so much online hype and excitement. 
um, that you guys were able to create. And I think that, um, you know, I think event hosts really need to be harnessing that now if they want to have events on a bigger scale because there's nothing that seems to be driving. Even considering the fact that a lot of reenactors are not maybe using social media for reenactment stuff, there are so many that are that um, stuff that happens on the internet is really just spilling over directly into what actually happens at events. Sure, and I think too, it's also important to to not get complacent and and only do your reenacting, you know, from your keyboard. I, you know, the point of it's to, to get out in the field and socialize and interact and meet new people, and you know, that's how we got hooked up with the Landrys and and, and yeah. their thing and other people who've become committee members and involved with us. And you know, I think it's it's a good thing to be able to have a balance of both. You mentioned that Kriegsschule event. That's taking place uh, later this summer, right? Are, are you guys planning on going to that? Um, yes, mm-hmm. I am right now. I've not signed up yet. Uh, I was just, I was actually packing my kit the other day, which it's not, it's not something I've done in a while. I'm, I'm excited enough that it's, it's like a month or so out. Yeah. And I'm, I'm already starting to pack for it. Yeah, we're, we're checking off the blocks, make sure we have all the stuff. And then, yeah, we're going to get on there and get out there. And I think it's good. It's going to be something that is going to give people in the leadership role at future events, a little bit of a backing saying, Hey, you know, I have this knowledge that, you know, is generally accepted and I can share it in a leadership role at X, Y, or Z event throughout the hobby. Yeah, he is, uh, this should solve one of the remaining issues that we noticed from our event. And that is the ability of officers and NCOs to perform their job uh, well and in a way that, uh, is beneficial to their men, like to actually take care of their, their men's experience in the field, you know, make sure their guys are getting out of the hobby, what they want to get out of it while also doing it in an authentic way. Yeah. It's more than just putting on a pair of shoulder straps and carrying your MP40 around. Yeah. I, I like the idea that w- maybe in the, the distant future or maybe not so distant future, you know, rank will start to mean something in the hobby. It, me- it means that, you know, this, this guy's actually, capable of leading the squad and uh, showing them, you know, a good time and doing it right and making it authentic. Sure. Where's that event taking place? It's like the Mid-Atlantic somewhere? Uh, Down in South South Carolina. Carolina. I think two hours from Charleston, something like that. South Carolina, yeah. I'd like to go to that, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to make that travel work. That's really far for for me to drive. Yeah, yeah. But it's definitely a really cool concept, and uh, I'm going to look into the idea of doing it because I think it's... uh, I think it's something really cool, definitely something different. And I know that at various times over the years, there have been uh, kind of bigger scale training events that trained participants in different stuff. But uh, there hasn't been anything like this, at least not for a while. So True. it's pretty cool. You know, other time cool periods point. have had it. And so it's it makes sense that it's coming out to 20th century stuff. Yeah, I think I think this also is uh, a good example of what COVID has done for the hobby it's it's given the you know the Landry's time to to come up with this. They they've been wanting to do it for a while, and and this kind of gave them the time to reflect on how to do it and what they wanted out of it. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that with other areas of the hobby. Is you know, people have this time off when they go back in, they're going to have a much better idea of what they're after. Sure. So I, I guess just lastly, like you know, beside the stuff that we already talked about, because we've, we've talked about this kind of already, but. Uh, you know what? What is it that you see that are areas where reenacting could could improve and be better for the participants and for everybody? Cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that uh, that we're trying to accomplish with this uh, Living History Center site 
is bringing a bunch more people together. You know, there's different areas of the historical preservation hobby, you know, reenacting, vehicle collecting, living history, yada, yada, yada. I'd like to see all these things come together and, and play well together because they're really all part of the same hobby. It's just making them work together is going to be interesting. And I, I'd like to see more of it because it's, we're all, in, we're all supposed to be pulling towards the same goal, you know, preserving and educating and ultimately enjoying the, the stuff that we collect and study. Sure. Jeff, do you guys both collect original stuff? Jeff, I know you mentioned that uh, earlier that you were buying stuff for your collection. Do you collect stuff too, Matt? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, one of my favorites is uniforms and, and helmets. That's one of the things that I enjoy collecting. And same thing at other time periods. You know, uniform groupings, ID'd groupings, anything you can put a name on. It's not just, oh, this is just a helmet, just a jacket. You know, I like being able to, to collect a little bit of something with a, with a history to it. That's cool. Jeff, what, what about you? What do you focus on? Oh, uh, the, running the business has definitely shaped the way I collect because it's a lot of sample-focused uh, collecting, sure. buying things that I can maybe make one day, even if it's just a pipe dream. Or, uh, oh, man, I love my blankets. Yeah, I, I do. I probably have 20 various types of German Army blanket uh, or more. I've had, I've had so many. I don't even keep track anymore uh i like original catalogs uh helmets uh, field equipment i seem to get a few weapons even though it's mm -hmm. not something i really look for they Weapons just come along weapons, yeah <laughs> yeah that's really cool i i collect stuff too i a lot of uh a lot of reenactors that i know collect original stuff and a lot don't you know i don't think that people really necessarily need to to be a good reenactor, to have a bunch of real stuff as well. But uh, to me, it's kind of... As long as you're able to get out and get hands-on original stuff so you know, okay, why does this person make the best, let's just say, tunic, you're able to see, okay, well, I've handled you know XYZ originals, and here's what I see in this manufacturer, this manufacturer. You know, lets you have an understanding of, you know, why is this the best, not, oh, go to that supplier because he's the best. It, it, the why, I think, is the important part. It's great to be able to handle the stuff. It's great to be able to study the stuff, and nothing really beats that. But there are so much, so many photographs of original stuff on the internet too. You know, there's just such a for it's. Uh, I think as a collector myself, I try to make my collection accessible via pictures online that I share in various ways, so that people can kind of get some of that information out of it that I get out of it. And there's so many people doing that that. Uh, you know, there's just such a glut of information out there about original material culture stuff. I think in many ways it kind of erases the, I don't think there's any actual need for reenactors to amass reference collections themselves. There's so much information. Yeah, not necessarily. It. And it, to be honest, a lot of it, you know, they might not be in it for that. And it, having a, an original, you know, German A-frame isn't going to do you much good as a reenactor because you're never going to be able to use it, or I would never let you use it, <laughs> you know, things like that. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, it's always helpful to have original things. And I think just it's better for people to know what they want out of what they're doing and go for that so that they're not you know, feeling obligated to do stuff that they're maybe not really that into. Like some people don't really want to collect different things, but they want to get this, this look for reenacting and they, they just need to know, know what they're going for. 
All right, guys, I think that's pretty much all the time that we've got. Uh, it has been awesome talking to you both again. You guys were uh, really fun to talk to on the podcast, and thank you very much for coming on. Sure, thank you for having us. Cool, and uh, I hope that um, you guys are going to make some progress with your with your, this project, and we can have you back on again and uh, and catch up with how everything's going. Yeah, absolutely. yeah I'd Appreciate enjoy that. that. Uh, anytime you have any questions from the vending side of reenacting, feel free to reach out. Yeah, that, I'm sure that's something our listeners would like to hear more about, too. I think I feel like we just scratched the surface of that whole thing. Oh, right? yeah, it's mm-hmm. a huge subject. So, All right, so uh, to everybody out there, uh, thanks for tuning in. Check out the link in the show notes so that you can see uh, the Military History Preservation Group website and, and learn a little more about what they're doing. And uh, to everybody out there, I will see you in the field. Before we go, you may want to check out Feller Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com, that is german-ww2.com, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.